0: Apple Card is the perfect cash-back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply.
1: A quick warning before we get started today. This episode contains graphic descriptions of hostage-taking and war. Okay, here's the show. On October 7th, friends and relatives of Gali Idan started getting messages to check her Facebook page. Idan is an Israeli who lives in a kibbutz near the border with Gaza.
2: The first messages were frantic. I think one just said Facebook. And then it clarified. Look at Gali's Facebook. Open Facebook now. That's reporter Shira Frankel, who covers tech for the New York Times. Check Gali's page was another one. A lot of them had misspellings, and it was clear something was going on, but the messages were pretty incoherent. And and what did her friends and and relatives do? One of her close friends, who had known her for over a decade, their their daughters had been born the same year, so they'd actually become friends through their oldest daughters, um, opened up Gali's Facebook page, and she... She had been looking for news of Gali because she had heard that there was something going on near the border. There were rumors that Hamas had maybe even managed to cross the border. She knew that Gali's particular kibbutz was very close, just a couple miles away from Gaza. And so she immediately thought of her. Um, And she had been trying to reach her and she thought, oh, well, you know, maybe there's something on Gali's Facebook page marking that she's safe. Or maybe Gali's put up a post saying, I'm okay. And so she opened up Golly's Facebook page and instead she saw that there was a live stream video. Do you want to tell me what was on it? I've seen the video. Um, a few of Golly's family members and one of her friends sent it to me. It shows um, Golly and her husband on the floor. It's a tile floor and uh, her husband's hands have blood on them. It's It's clear, it's very red from his wrist, basically up to his elbow. Um, And there's two small children, and one of the children, a boy who's about seven years old, is saying, where's my sister, where's my sister? And um, the mom actually shushes him a couple times, and at one point Gali says, uh, it didn't happen, it didn't happen, nothing's happening. And uh, then you hear voices in Arabic um, speaking to them, telling them uh, to stay where they are, You hear gunshots, you hear mortars. And um, at one point, the gunshots get louder and and Gali and her husband cover their children's bodies with their own bodies um, and say, stay down. And it's about, I think, 15 or 16 minutes into the live stream, Gali says something along the lines of, stay down, I can't lose another child today. Oh my God. And, you know, um, her friend watching all this at first is like, what, what am I watching? And she realizes it's live, that she's seeing her friend in what's maybe the worst moment of her life, and it's happening right there and then. And she deduces from the voices in Arabic that there is someone hostile in the room with them. She's thinking immediately, like, is that Hamas? Is that a Hamas gunman in the room? She doesn't know, right? Like, it's just, it's it's horrible. And, um, and she actually, Two of her friends couldn't watch the entire thing. One of her family members told me that they did stay online and watch the entire thing. Um, they They couldn't look away, was how they described it.
1: Gali's oldest daughter was killed, and her husband was taken hostage. Gali and her three younger children escaped, but not before their loved ones witnessed much of the ordeal on Gali's own social media.
2: When you heard about this, wh- what did you think? Well, you know, I I had heard the day of October 7th, there had been a number of Israelis who spoke to radio um, and spoke to Israeli TV and described seeing live streams. And so I immediately kind of was like, live streams? Like, is that possible? And And, and so when I heard it, I kind of had an inkling that this was happening. But then when I saw it for myself, it's... It's shocking they were able to do this sort of thing, that they were able to live stream themselves. Hamas gunmen to be specific were able to live stream themselves holding a family hostage for 43 minutes. In another case, they live streamed themselves holding a family for over an hour. That they were able to document this in what, you know, really was a form of psychological warfare and terror for the for the loved ones that were watching this happen.
1: As hard as it is to hear these accounts. They are also instructive, because they tell us about a new way of waging war. For as long as humans have fought each other, they've told stories about it. Now, those stories have 21st century tools. Today on the show, Inside Hamas's Social Media Strategy. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cash-back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. One thing
1: Shira realized in her reporting was just how planned out the decision to use hostages' social media accounts was. When Hamas gunmen went to the Adan's home,
2: cell phones were one of the first things they demanded. They entered the home. Um, they asked for their cell phones and their IDs. That was the first thing they asked for. And then in this case, they took Gali's cell phone and they unlocked it. And they opened up Facebook and from her phone began the live stream. What's you know, what's interesting here, so so last week for a different story, I actually interviewed members of Hamas that had run social media f- for the for the organization in the past. And Hamas, you know, has a political wing where they develop, you know, films and, and uh, political campaigns for their members. So they actually have like a fairly established comms team. And it was, you know, they described it as a very premeditated strategy meant to appeal to their supporters and show what they had done. Hamas has Facebook accounts, right? Like They could have opened up their own Facebook accounts and begun to live stream a video if they wanted to. But the decision to take the cell phone of someone they were holding hostage and use their Facebook account to live stream it was, was very specific and deliberate. It happened in at least four cases that we could document. So it wasn't just a one-off. It was something they had strategized and decided to do ahead of time.
1: How long did it take for the tech companies to realize this was happening and to, to disable these accounts?
2: Uh, so in most cases, the accounts were disabled in 24 to 36 hours, quite a while as far as the families were concerned. Yeah. In one case, we found the families, the, this, a young woman who was taken hostage from a music festival um, near the Gaza border. Her Facebook account remained active for three to four days after she was taken and the family continued to get messages on it from people that they presume were holding their daughter hostage.
1: I would imagine that this is particularly difficult for a loved one. Somehow there's something even more invasive than seeing your child in news footage or your loved one in news footage that their own digital footprint feels so
2: intimate. It, it does. And I think that, you know... <laughs> all of us have gotten unwanted messages on social media i'm not trying to make it seem like social media is this fluffy warm place where we only see pleasant things we like N- not at all but i think you just picture yourself for a minute you open your facebook account and there's a message from a family member or like a close friend someone you know intimately you generally expect that to be like hey how's going or like look you know it's a, it's a nice message it inspires a moment of connection and to instead see that that message or that video or whatever it is is coming from someone who's you know, potentially holding the life of your loved one in their hands—that's that's so jarring. That's such a, a cognitive dissonance for most people to to begin to be able to cope with. Um, invasive was was one word that was used. Terrifying was another word that was used. A lot of the people just struggled to figure out how to even describe to me what they were feeling. They also felt like this horrible sinking feeling in in the case of the live streams, that they were watching someone they cared about in like, in really the worst moment of their life. Before you were a tech reporter, you covered wars. You covered the last three wars in Israel. Is that right? Yeah, I I was a Middle East reporter for 10 years. Um, I actually lived in Gaza in 2005, and then uh, briefly, and then um, I covered the first three wars that were fought between Israel and Gaza. Have you ever seen anything like this before? No, I mean this is this is very much a new tactic, and and you know we called up and spoke to people who are experts in in extremist groups like Hamas. Um, I remember very very much ISIS kind of pioneering the use of social media to to spread their viewpoint across the world. I covered it. I was in Iraq and I was in Syria, and their ability. To use that attention economy of social media to get people to watch really horrible things, beheading videos, hostage videos. That was at the time unprecedented. But they had not thought of this strategy or been able to implement the strategy of hijacking the social media feeds of people you're holding hostage. That's that's something I've never I've never seen before. And I think it was particularly effective in this case um, because so many civilians were involved. The last Reporting I saw from from a colleague in Israel was that Israel believes 199 people were were kidnapped and are currently being held somewhere in Gaza. So that's a a lot of civilians with very established social media feeds.
1: As you mentioned, you talked to Hamas about their social media strategy, and I'm I'm really interested in the way they have put thought into using different platforms and how those platforms then spread messages out almost like a sort of blossoming. Can,
2: can you walk me through that? Yeah, I, I mean, Hamas is very smart about how they strategize these sorts of things. And they, like many of us, have seen what's happened on Twitter over the last year. And um, they know that they would not be able to do this kind of pro-Hamas propaganda. A year ago, what they do today, and 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 the strategy they've kind of come up with is they start on Telegram, which is a, a messaging app, which pretty much I think it's fair to say has almost no content moderation on it. Um, white supremacists in America have Telegram pages. The Proud Boys have Telegram pages. Like, this is a place where a lot of very fringe groups have established themselves. So Hamas has quite a few Telegram channels in Arabic and in English, and really in other languages as well. Where they where they just seed videos and photos and um, slogans and messages and and. Underneath it, it's actually like very. um, They they give very clear directions. They'll post like a new video or photo or whatever, and then underneath it, they'll say like, "Please, please spread this on Twitter and TikTok and this and that and the other." And here's like translations to other languages. If you're French speaking, please post it with this language. If you're Spanish speaking, post hashtags. Right, like it's actually very cohesive and thought out. And largely, they tell people to do it on Twitter um they've like openly commented on some of these pages that twitter is very easy to post things to right now um we have to remember that when elon musk took control of the platform a year ago now he fired most of the established trust and safety team many of whom actually had experience in specifically in hamas but also just in like in in extremist organizations and so when that expertise left the building literally they lost a lot of their their sort of skill set in removing these accounts quickly so they tell them to go to Twitter and they also tell them to go to TikTok and YouTube. And they even give instructions on how you can speed up the video or slow down the video or clip the video so that if those companies take down one version of it, maybe another version can live online.
1: Yeah, Hamas is supposed to be banned on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Has that worked?
2: I think that Facebook, Instagram, you know, the the, the meta companies, the meta-owned companies, I should say, has been very quick to take them down, um, Hamas accounts specifically down. Um they struggle with it, though. And, and I've written about this a lot in the past. You know, Hamas also operates schools. Right. They are a political organization who inform people when, you know, power and electricity is going to be on or off. And so there are Hamas pages that, that Facebook's really struggled with. Like, wait, well, if this is a page that's let, letting people know when the first day of school is or when, like, you know, water and power will be resumed to their neighborhoods, like, is that something that we should be taking down? Um so Facebook struggles with it but by and large when something is posting graphic videos or veers into the into the territory of like posting like propaganda I would say that supportive of Ham- of Hamas's military wing they are very quick to take it down. Twitter less so. TikTok is very I'm, I'm still struggling to figure out TikTok because I've seen some videos removed like within minutes, I would say, and then others that have lived there for hours. And I can't see really rhyme or reason for why some are being removed and some aren't. So I think TikTok's a little bit more whack-a-mole at the moment.
1: Yeah, as you alluded to, Telegram really has very little moderation, if any, I think we can say none. Um, and their chief executive wrote a post saying that they had removed millions of obviously harmful content but, but he also said, and this is the point that you're getting at, that their app serves as a place for Hamas to put messages out there. And there are people, you, me, journalists, researchers, regular old people, who rely on getting some of that content. And I just, like, I wonder what to make of that.
2: Yeah, I think what we make of it is that it's not easy and in a time of war it gets even harder that these groups are really sophisticated and thinking through like, what are the gray areas that they can seize on um, to get their own messaging out? I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people wrote me after my article was published last week to say like, why would Hamas want to document this? Like they're documenting war crimes. They're documenting themselves, kidnapping civilians. Like how could they possibly think this is a good idea? And I, I have to remind them that like from their point of view, this is, this is, showing their group being strong. It's showing their group capable of both, you know, a cross border raid into Israel, which was previously thought of as sort of impregnable. And it's showing them getting the upper hand on a country which many, many populations in the Arab world see as, you know, consistently being the aggressor when it comes to Gaza. The narrative for many people in Hamas and people who support Hamas is that, all Israelis are settlers who should not be there. And so they see this sort of violence, this sort of, you know, they, they see it as a, as a military activity. And so they were quite happy to document it because it supported their cause. And they actually, you know, if you go to these groups, these channels where they're in, there's like, you know, there's there's thousands of comments celebrating what they did.
1: When we come back, what the tech companies have and haven't learned in the past decade... If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, I host Slate's legal podcast Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. I am really struck, as you alluded to, We've come full circle in a way. I'm thinking to back to those ISIS videos in 2014 when content moderation was not robust. Things went up on YouTube that were horrifying. But then social media companies seemed to put a decent amount of effort and time and staffing into content moderation that helped stop some of this. And yet at the same time, 2019, Christchurch, New Zealand, a far-right extremist, shot 51 people in a mosque and live-streamed it on Facebook. And I'm trying to think of all these different examples and wonder what the social media companies do with this, other than, as you said, play
2: whack-a-mole. Yeah, I mean, I think play whack-a-mole Hire ever increasing teams to be responsive and to freeze this kind of activity when it happens. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned that Facebook has been very relatively quick to take this stuff down. They've also—what yeah, does their operation look like? Well, I mean, they've also, I would say, since COVID, since the you know we 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 we've all written about, and I think your show you've talked about all the layoffs that hit Facebook. um, they also lost people of their security team and of their trust and safety team. And so their teams are also smaller than they used to be. They No one to the extent that Twitter, I mean, let's be clear, Elon Musk, and I shouldn't even call it Twitter, I, th- I think I should be calling it X now, um, he he decimated their trust and safety team. Like there's there, there was no one left on their trust and safety team here in America that, that used to once work on these things. So that's an extreme example. But all the companies have been reducing their headcount and making these teams smaller. And that makes it makes it slower. That makes us kind of work slower. But even if even if they had more people, that's never going to be 100 percent effective. You reported that Meta has this sort
1: of special operations center with experts who speak fluent Hebrew and Arabic.
2: W- what does that work look like? So they staff these kinds of special operations centers when there's an event happening somewhere in the world and they need sort of country-specific expertise. What it basically looks like is like getting together a bunch of people in one room who understand that specific country, that conflict, who have knowledge of the local language, but also of like, you know, the... the they need to know the memes. They need to know mm. like the context. It's not as simple as like being able to speak Hebrew. It's a it's much more complicated than that. And so they want to make sure they're getting enough people together in one room who can catch what's going on as it happens. So like if someone is suddenly, you know, it's almost as if the military, right, knows something is happening in a specific country and they get together a group of people that have intelligence knowledge of that country. It's the same kind of thing.
1: One of the things that I think is so difficult here is, as you know, it's incredibly hard to report from Gaza. Some of the social media that has come out has given people a voice, and yet that can be so easily weaponized to inflict harm on on viewers, on loved ones, et cetera. Like how how do companies reckon with that being a tool of information and connection and with
2: harm and destruction? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the hardest things happening in, in Gaza right now. You know, I, I there are a lot of people who live in Gaza who depend on social media to try and find out where they're going to get water in a given day or fuel or where food is coming in. I mean, the UN provides food to, I think, over 1 million people who live in the Gaza Strip, and social media is one way that they tell one another, oh, the UN Food Operations Center is happening here and not there today, especially in a in a time of war where there's widespread um, bombing happening across the Gaza Strip. People are letting one another know where it's safe to be through social media. It's not as though any company would would be acting responsibly if they were just going to shut down social media in the Gaza Strip. That would not be a responsible course of action.
1: One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is that you have this deep background in covering the Middle East, in covering conflict, and also in covering tech companies. And I guess I wonder, no small question, how you think the role of technology and social media has evolved in this region in the past decade?
2: Hmm. Well, I this it goes to a lot to what I've been thinking about these last few days, which is that in so many ways, what's happening in the Middle East and specifically in Israel and 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 Gaza and the West Bank is a battle of narratives, and it's been fought, you know, since the 1940s, potentially even before, of you know whose version of the story is the right one. Is it the version that serves the, the, the state of Israel or is it the version that serves the Palestinian people? And as the years have gone on, as the decades have gone on, each side has become really deeply entrenched in their own narrative of things. And technology, for the most part, has served that. These, these tech companies, specifically the social media companies, have created really deep echo chambers for each side to be able to press its version. And you know, just to sort of paint for people a picture of what I'm saying. I I, I speak Hebrew and I'm I'm conversational in Arabic. So I really do watch both. And there are moments where you could be on facebook as an israeli or or instagram or, or or twitter or tiktok for that matter and you will see the most heart-wrenching interview of an israeli woman whose daughters have been kidnapped to the gaza strip describing that moment that ordeal what it's like to not know if her children are safe and she'll describe her family's history in that country and how her potentially her parents escaped from you know nazi germany to find safe haven in a jewish state. it is a heart-wrenching moment of media that the internet is perfect at disseminating and spreading and you can also go over and be as a Palestinian person in Arabic on that part of Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or Twitter or whatever and watching a video of people who were displaced from their homes you know in in 1948 I watched one just the other day of a man whose entire family was killed in an airstrike in the northern Gaza Strip. He described how they had been, time and time again, three different times, removed from their homes, forced into, into a refugee camp, and this heartbreaking interview of the experience of losing his family. And you can just see how your heart would break if you were a Palestinian person watching that or if your heart would break it as an Israeli person watching the, the other interview. and. I hate to generalize, but I will say that for the most part, neither side is watching both.
1: Shira Frankel, thank you for your reporting and for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Shira Frankel is a tech reporter for The New York Times. And that is it for the show today. What Next? TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Anna Phillips. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. It's the best way to support our work. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back tomorrow with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.